0: Welcome to New Books in Intellectual History. I'm your host today, Carl Nellis, and I'm talking with Scott Solisker, who's Assistant Professor of English at the University of Arizona, and we're talking about his new book, Human Programming, Brainwashing Automatons and American Unfreedom. Scott, welcome to the show. Uh, Thanks, Carl, and thanks so much for having me. I'm, I'm delighted to have you wanted to talk about the research that you've done really across a century's worth of storytelling and discussion and discourses about human automatons, and to explore what you have done in bringing those pieces together. Before we jump into the book, can you talk a little bit about what brought you to this field, to this project, what spurred your interests, and then uh, maybe a little bit about the process of researching and writing this book? Sure.
1: Thanks. Um, so, uh, you know, I, this is uh, a project I've been working on for some time, uh, really since about 2005. Uh, and that was a moment um, when I was you know in graduate school and noticing um, a lot of public discourse uh about brainwashing it was um you know um uh, the um American Taliban uh soldier John Walker Lind had been captured in 2002 and media uh, outlets were uh talking about him and uh giving interviews about him uh, as having been brainwashed and In the years following, uh, more and more narratives about brainwashing kind of came back. Uh, For instance, uh, Jonathan Demme um, remade uh, the Manchurian Candidate, and uh also uh Fox News and uh, MSNBC were relatively new uh, uh presences on cable networks and uh you heard a lot of uh sort of back and forth between uh increasingly uh partisan uh political scene uh where mm-hmm. people on the mm-hmm. left and on the right called each other uh brainwashed um so i got really interested in uh, both the history of that idea um, and in its kind of functions in the public sphere, um, how it got used to describe, um, people who seem to hold an idea, uh, that would be sort of unthinkable and even literally unthinkable, uh, if you have mm-hmm. to be brainwashed in order to, uh, hear it. So I got interested in that idea and, um, over the course of dissertation research and, uh, turning it into a book, um, I wound up with uh, a kind of longer uh, and bigger story about it. Uh, the mm-hmm. first development was realizing that um, brainwashing uh, is is kind of attached to um, a particular literary figure that I called the human automaton uh, a film uh, and literature uh, kind of between high literature and science fiction, uh, often, stage these encounters with uh, a being that seems uh, to be maybe a real person uh, or maybe uh, a robot or maybe a real uh, free thinking person uh, or maybe someone who's been brainwashed. Mm-hmm. So um, I looked at that figure and, you know, the the kind of literary history of that figure uh, is maybe the kind of anchor through the book. Um, but the book wound up being structured um, as a kind of story uh, about how we think about American freedom uh versus uh either totalitarian or communist or fundamentalist unfreedom, um, as I looked at the different kinds of uses of brainwashing discourse and of this human automaton figure, uh, both in literature uh and in Uh, the social sciences and public discourses, Um, Mm -hmm. we talked about uh, totalitarians, uh, communists, uh, cult members, uh, and then fundamentalists uh, using the same uh, kind of toolkit of images of uh, sort of Mm -hmm. unfreedom. As you begin the book with the
0: introduction, you do start with John Walker Lind. And then you also set out what the book is intending to do over the course of this literary history, which really becomes a cultural history. I I really appreciate the extent to which you engage all kinds of discourses. You know, it's a literary history, um, but it's literary history in the sense that it engages news narratives, and it engages political discourse, and it engages scientific discourse. And so in that way, it's truly interdisciplinary in a way I really appreciate. Can you talk a little bit about how you moved from... Maybe what would be considered a traditional literary history to doing what looks more like a cultural
1: studies? Yeah, I think, um, you know, in terms of um, my background, I, you know, had an Eng- English and, and complete undergraduate uh, uh, degrees. And when I got to graduate school, I was, you know, really interested in uh, American studies as a field and a kind of, uh, paradiscipline, uh, maybe, um, and so as I wound up, you know, writing a dissertation that was a more traditionally literary dissertation, um, I kept, uh, thinking that I, or I kept seeing the things I was writing about, um, in other kinds of discourse. And, uh, for me, um, I like to think of it as, I like to think of, um, you know a good uh, literary criticism study uh, kind of thinking about the ways that literature uh, and film uh, both uh, both are kind of equally uh, in the book um have a kind of footprint uh, all across the culture um so a book like uh, 1984 um kind of gets into uh, America. It's a book of the month club uh, right after it's released in 1949. And then the images um, of, you know, the two minutes hate of uh, double think of newspeak, speak, um, all this kind of cluster of ideas and images just goes everywhere in American mm-hmm. culture. It's, um it gets name checked in sociological studies and political theory um and uh psychiatrists uh, book about what's wrong with things today um and <laughs> yeah. so right, right so um that kind of footprint of you know a set of sort of fundamentally literary and cinematic images kind of going everywhere uh in culture was uh really exciting to me and so uh the book wound up Um, telling a story about, uh, you know, literature and science, um, and politics, um, in a way that the exchanges between them wound up being really, uh, ultimately omnidirectional. Um, sometimes, uh, science fiction writers would be taking up what scientists or, uh, uh, political theorists or political thinkers were doing. Um, and sometimes it would be totally the other way around. Well, and and one of the things I appreciate about the introduction is that it gives a strong and
0: clear sense of some of those mechanisms. Uh, You know, so you do say many different ways, but you also demonstrate what I would consider a pretty strong model of culture, where you're saying this book is a literary and cultural history that demonstrates how we get the metaphor, the figure of the automaton. Uh, But then you also say... Then in turn, it's, this is the, the history of how the figure of the automaton shapes American ideas about the self and the other and freedom and unfreedom. So you're talking both about how a culture generates, uh, figures or metaphors or ideas and then how those ideas in turn shape the culture. Uh, and so I thought the way that you set that out in the, in the introduction is, is really helpful and clear. So some of the other things that you do in the introduction are you pull in thinkers that you'll be working with, uh, whose methods or whose key terms you borrow. And then you talk a little bit about some of the more concrete pieces of the, of the metaphor or the figure of the automaton. Um, so can you maybe talk a little bit about how, as you're setting up theoretically, you, you address the ideas of Foucault and, and Ranciere and Latour who, who come back
1: throughout the book. Sure. Sure. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I think, I think maybe, uh, in, in some ways, uh, Latour, uh, Gives me a sort of, uh, model for what I want to do. And, you know, he's a sociologist and, um, mm-hmm. in a recent book, uh, says that his kind of model for what uh, a good sociological study should do, um, is to trace a network, um, to, uh, kind of assume that all of the players, uh, that you see in the field before you, um, are kind of on equal footing, um, and that what you ought to do is look, uh, for all the different ways you can find that they connect to each other. Um, so that gives me, uh, or that gave me a kind of way of thinking about literature and film and, uh, the social sciences and political theory and public discourse kind of on the same footing without assuming, um, you know, that, uh, science is the bad guy, and that literature uh, is, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, going to sort of uh, you know cr- critique all the bad things that happen in the in the <laughs> world, and that that's going to be the only relationship between the two. Um, right. So uh, that that aspect from Latour really uh, gave me a kind of model to work with, and I, I'd say that you know within American studies um, uh, and and also literature and science, someone like uh, Priscilla Wald, who wrote uh, a book about um, a contagion and the ways that we tell stories about outbreaks. Um, that was, a, for me, a kind of similar model um, of kind of telling a story about um, these uh, really omnidirectional uh, interchanges between uh, mm-hmm. literary culture, uh, scientific culture, and uh, the news media. So that would be a, that's another, I think, kind of uh, debt for me. And and those two books, uh, I think, kind of gave me the model for uh, what I want to talk about. Um, and with Foucault, actually, Latour gives me a way of kind of. Well, ultimately, talking about brainwashing uh, in a way that doesn't uh, just totally depend on uh, Foucault's uh, sort of docile body and uh, panopticon and so forth, right. Um, right. which is you know kind of how brainwashing has been talked about in academic discourse before. Um, mm-hmm. If you use that model of, uh, sort of, this is how power operates and, you know, ideology, uh, Althusser, uh, kind of interpolates the subject. Um, you, you come up with a, a model where, well, brainwashing is an example of that. Uh, but then you don't have anything left to say. Um, mm-hmm. so, uh, uh, Latour and Wald's and other, uh, literature and science work, um, helped me to get a kind of more uh, uh, supple uh, relationship uh, in those. Mm -hmm. And then Ranciere uh, comes in as I start to think about the question of community. Uh, Ranciere has uh, some really, uh, I think compelling ideas about what democracy is and what um, a kind of political action looks like. And he, um, describes, uh, you know, democracy in terms of, uh, counting who counts, uh, uh, you know, as a voter, uh, which is certainly, uh, a relevant topic, uh, these Mm -hmm. days, um, who counts in a democracy and who do we allow to count? Um, and he winds up saying that, you know, our perception of the world of what's, uh, uh, kind of considered proper, or what the uh, what we consider to be natural divisions, um, sort of influences and shapes how we understand who counts in a democracy. Mm-hmm. So uh, you know, when when you look at uh, the image of uh, the brainwashed uh, John Walker Lind or uh, the brainwashed Brody in Homeland, uh, which I also wind up talking about in the book, mm-hmm. uh, you you get. Um someone who obviously can't count, right? You have someone who well, it, they're not free thinking, so they can't be part of a democracy. And so, uh I got really interested in this idea um that you know, we imagine democracy to be you know founded on freedom and and in uh many good and useful ways. Uh but then that led me to uh, investigate What do we think unfreedom is? What do we Mm -hmm. um, how do we decide who doesn't count um, and whose ideas don't count? And, you know, we saw examples of that uh, during, say, the Red Scare or uh, McCarthyism um, and in in other kind of historical moments where we imagine that certain ideas could only be uh, sort of brainwashed into people.
0: And another piece of how you locate that idea is you talk about uh, in the introduction ideas of the human as being between a uh, kind of animal brute beast on one side and then machine or kind of automaton. On the other, and kind of a wholly embodied where the human gets absorbed into a bodily nature or uh, kind of wholly disembodied, just kind of a a detached mind. Can you talk a little bit about how you deal with that network of
1: ideas in the introduction? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Thanks. That's, um, you know, I wound up uh, sort of trying to engage with the uh, intellectual history of exclusion um mm-hmm. and uh thinking about how the history of race affected especially early in uh the 20th century um how we understand who counts uh in a democracy how we right. uh, think about who's really fully human um so there's a lot of terrific work uh about the first half of the uh 20th century um and the roles of eugenics in a uh, sort of imagining a kind of hierarchy of uh, the races and a kind of relationship between people and animals. Um, so uh, Dana Seitler's work, Daylan English's Walter Ben Michael's all thinking about um, this history of exclusions based on, Uh, ultimately white supremacy that's uh, Mm -hmm. sort of uh, shored up by science. Um, You know, that was a narrative where this kind of continuum between people and animals, um, uh, what Dana Zeitler calls uh, atavism, sort of structures uh, the ideas about who counts. Mm -hmm. And what struck me is that as, as uh, sharp and useful as those, Uh, uh, histories are, and as uh, applicable, unfortunately, as they are for current, uh, for for kind of present day, uh, say, white supremacists, um, the kind of uh, mainstream uh, of political and scientific culture um, after World War II really doesn't deal in eugenics anymore you know we we open up the the camps at the end of world war II. um we see that the the not uh, we we sort of understand we come to understand the nazi project um as a project of eugenics of of eugenics and we distance ourselves from that um uh sort of uh, as as a culture at large and we wind up with a really different uh kind of scene for Propaganda for nationalism, for thinking about um, what makes uh, democracy. So we have uh, this kind of globally expanding democracy after World War II as we, as America takes uh, a kind of bigger role on the world stage. Um, mm-hmm. And we have an enemy that's no longer uh, uh, explainable in terms of uh, their racial characteristics anyway. Um, uh, we're not fighting. Uh, a particular country um were fighting communism uh after right. World War two right. right and so you can't re- you can't represent uh, a communism as uh just um you know a, a kind of a-, a set of physical characteristics um but Even starting during World War II, uh, when people were, um, when people like Eric Fromm were writing about what totalitarianism is, uh, Mm -hmm. they light on this image of uh, what what Eric Fromm calls the human automaton, uh, a kind of uh, a person who's reduced to a sort of machine. And that image and, and this is kind of, uh, the main narrative of my book. Um, mm-hmm. that image really takes hold, uh, takes, takes hold across the political spectrum. You have, you, you, you have it, uh, getting kind of applied on both the left and the right and in the center, uh, during this period, uh, sort of between World War II, uh, and the present. Um, and so instead of, um, imagining people as kind of on a continuum with animals, uh, in public discourse and propaganda, you have, well, you have brainwashing, right? You have, um, mm-hmm. this set of ideas about what, uh, you know, either institutions or, uh, uh propaganda or, uh, even, you know, like brainwashing and POW camps, Um, Mm -hmm. can do to like mess up the human brain, uh, in a way that makes it more like a machine. Uh, and of course, you know, at the mid century, we're also at a moment where, uh, we're sort of starting to imagine computers. And so we're thinking, uh, more in terms of. Uh, the mind's resemblance to a computer uh, than we are of the, the kind of organisms, uh, or the human organism's relationship to uh, the animal. Um, so, so yeah, that, that winds up being a kind of structuring uh, historical uh, narrative, uh, you know, in broad strokes uh, that kind of gives me a spot to start in uh, uh, right during world war two that says, Hey, we're, um, we're imagining something totally different about you know, who belongs and who doesn't uh, in this moment. And the way that you use the
0: image of marching soldiers in World War II propaganda on both sides is really interesting. I think does some great work there in setting that up. Um, and then as you use Eric Fromm to transition into uh, Cold War and, and the first chapter, you then talk about how Orwell picks up on a certain kind of programming through language. And then, as you said earlier, um, that becomes a major piece of what, ge- what gets understood as a human automaton. And you put Orwell in a really interesting conversation with, uh, Hannah Arendt. Can you talk about, uh, what's going on with Orwell and language in particular that, um, gets picked up and attached to ideas of totalitarianism
1: and an automatons? Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. I, um, in, in the past month or so, I've I've thought a, a lot about Orwell, uh, who I think mm. is just a, mm. an absolutely uh, relevant figure for us uh, for thinking about public discourse, um, for thinking mm. about uh, misinformation, um, the kind of I don't know fatigue and dread uh, uh, associated with hearing. Uh, um, uh, two plus two equals five sort of over and over again um, right but uh in the book, I wind up taking a a sort of um, a narrower approach to Orwell, where I think about his uh interest in newspeak um he uh, or Orwell was a big fan of um kind of a progressive language change policy right he has that famous uh, essay uh, politics in the english language that right. Uh, right. you know english composition instructors are still assigning <laughs> uh, right <laughs> yep yeah <laughs> where he's talking about sort of ridding your mind of clichés and not to um uh, not to say things without thinking, uh, through the image. And so he'll, he'll come up with an image like, uh, the fascist octopus has sung its swan song and says so like, no, like you can't say you can't use metaphors and sort of set phrases, uh, in this unthinking way. And you know, it's still useful, uh, composition, uh, essay. Um, but it's also um, an essay about what Orwell thinks is really thinking and how yeah. important Orwell thought uh, really thinking was to democracy. And, you know, that's, I, I think, just an absolutely key point. Um, mm-hmm. And so he, um, in that Politics in the English Language essay, uh, describes uh, describes, I think he says, um, that you know, actually thinking uh, will be the first step in political regeneration. Uh, so he really means it. He he right. means the politics part. And uh, in 1984, um, that same kind of idea comes uh, directly into Newspeak. Uh, one of Winston Smith's first kind of rebellions in the novel is he. Uh, Encounters a person who he calls a quack speaker, which I it, it was great rereading the novel and finding this uh, delightful uh, quack speaking and duck speaking. Um, but it's someone who only speaks in orthodoxy, someone who uh, mm-hmm. he says um, that they're not even speaking with their brain. They're speaking with their larynx. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so uh th- this idea that you know orthodoxy can be absorbed and then just kind of chirped back at people, so he winds up i think in in nineteen eighty four thinking really seriously about that possibility uh so when right. uh orwell uh uh was having the book published in America. And it was going to be a new, uh, uh, sorry, book of the month club book. Uh, they told him, uh, "Yeah, we like everything, but let's take out the appendix on Newspeak to make it more reader friendly." And he mm. he refused. He right. uh, risked you know, risked uh, a fair amount of money on absolutely insisting that this uh, appendix on Newspeak uh, be part of the book, and so. Through it, he's thinking, he has an example where he says, Oh, well, the common turn. Um, if you, uh, just say common turn, you don't have to think about the fact that it's a communist, uh, international. Um, and this seems like, uh, th- this kind of intensification of his point, uh, uh to an almost absurd level. Like, um, mm-hmm. like you do, because there's a, because you're only saying three syllables, uh, instead of, uh, what? 6 or 7 um you you won't have time to to stop and think um but that stopping and thinking is really important to him and so mm-hmm. uh he imagines newspeak in Oceania as a kind of technology of propaganda um that's uh, even more a uh, kind of intense uh than than uh news propaganda than misinformation Mm-hmm. Um, so he wants to imagine uh, a language where if you don't have the words, then you won't be able to think critically. Right. And you know that uh, is is something that pops up in Hannah Arendt's work uh, as well when she like, when she describes. Uh, Adolf Eichmann's uh, personality, the, uh, the kind of uh, architect of uh, the Holocaust who goes on trial uh, in the early 60s, aren't there to report on it, and she sees him in the courtroom and she sees him talking, and she sees him as precisely uh, a, a duck speaker. She says that he mm-hmm. uh, only thinks in Amtssprache, uh, official ease. And he thinks only in cliches. Um, and that's the thing, um, that keeps him from thinking critically. So it's, it's an interesting, uh, kind of historical point to me, um, I'm not sure. Like, I'm I'm not sure. I I quite buy into you know, linguists call this the the Sapir Whorf uh, hypothesis. Right. Uh, yep. uh That you know, your language constrains what you're able to think. Um, I'm not sure I buy it quite on the face of it. Um, in in all the particulars, but historically, it's fascinating because it gives. Um, it, it's this moment where critical thinking um, is such uh, an important thing uh, for both Orwell and Arendt to, um, you know, try to figure out where is it? We we have to find it. We need it uh, for, uh, like, democracy in the world. Um, And so they look for it uh, precisely in language. Well, and
0: one of the ways that you set that up uh is by talking about how much that picks up on behavior psychology and particularly Watson. Absolutely. And this is one of the places where you begin the really um the cross pollination or the omnidirectional movement of ideas between uh science and psychology in particular and and literature and political discourse. Can you just talk a little bit more about the connection between Watson's ideas and behavior
1: psychology and how it gets to Orwell. Oh yeah. Yeah, he, um, so, so Orwell, uh, yeah, this is a a kind of interesting little, little miniature like case study and miniature of that omnidirectionality, um, because Mm -hmm. Orwell, um, in his kind of climactic scene of 1984, the, the one where Winston, uh, gets tortured by the, uh, with the rats in his face, um, He borrows that from uh, John B. Watson, who is uh, the kind of American founder of uh, behaviorist psychology. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, Pavlov, uh, who's, of course, better known uh, mostly through anti-Russian propaganda, um, uh, is doing uh, similar work in um, the USSR at the time. Um, But Watson uh, winds up coming up with this sort of full program for uh psychology. And it's you know in uh some uh, uh sort of subfields and in some uh kinds of practice behaviorism is still uh, uh useful today um with say treatments of severe autism and so forth. Um but um Watson wants to think about uh the mind kind of from the outside Um, he he says that, you know, all of the psychology that's come before him is unscientific, um, because it's not based on observable things. So the thing you can observe about someone is their behaviors. And so, um, like Pavlov's dogs, uh, the, the salivation, uh, is this kind of involuntary reflex that they're, uh, examining, uh, with that. And, um, Watson kind of keeps on uh, with this program and B.F. Skinner, uh, one of his disciples uh, sort of continues it through the middle uh, of the century. And um, in uh, Skinner's verbal behavior, uh, there's this kind of set of really pretty radical ideas um, that, you know, if we're going to think of everything um, as a behavior, um, as something that's a habit as something that can be learned um, and as something that could be petition- potentially conditioned or unlearned Skinner says, well, you know, our words are behaviors too. Um, and uh, of course that's not so far from what someone like uh, the late, the later Wittgenstein would say. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Um, so he starts describing um, all of our words as kind of habits of thought. And that's precisely what uh, Orwell does in 1984 as well. In the appendix in News on Newspeak, he talks mm-hmm. about um, the habits of thought that are associated with individual words. So um, he'll say. Um, I'll, I'll forget the exact words, examples he uses, but he says, oh, well, you know, these ideas like freedom, democracy, uh, and individuality, uh, uh, something like that, will get kind of banished by Newspeak in the same way that, um, you know, the pagan gods like Moloch and Baal and Osiris uh, uh, <laughs> right. are in the Bible, right? That there's um, this way of just kind of throwing out old ways of thinking, uh, with old words. Um, and of course this, uh, that, that Skinner book gets, uh, famously, uh, savaged in a review by, uh, Noam Chomsky, uh, after it comes out, that was kind of right at the beginning of Chomsky's career. Um, but, um, that, that set of ideas, uh, where all of our, you know, all of our behaviors are habits. Um, all of our most cherished thoughts um, are something that we've been taught uh, and something that we might have been taught totally differently. Um, That gets, that gets to be a really worrisome uh, uh, problem for someone like Orwell uh, who's imagining, you know, what this new uh, uh, geopolitical phenomenon of the totalitarian state uh, might be capable of. Uh, if allowed to flourish. Yeah. Yeah. And then you kind of transition into a historical mode
0: and um you have a section of chapter one on the brainwashing scare. Can you talk a little bit about what was going on there uh, historically?
1: To finish uh or to kind of tie back to uh that omnidirectionality of uh mm-hmm. exchange with Orwell. Orwell borrows uh Watson's scene and um Indirectly, I think, uh, arrives at ideas that look a lot like Skinner's. Um, and then, um, Orwell's 1984 gets into the hands of a, uh, CIA operative named Edward Hunter who, uh, credits him, uh, with helping him come up with the idea of brainwashing. Um, Edward Hunter's the, uh, the operative who, uh coins this term ar- around 1950 or 1951 mm-hmm. um so historically uh at this moment you know orwell's uh, written just after the end of world war 2 um and uh hunter is uh, a correspondent working for the CIA um in mao's china so he uh uh, chairman mao has just taken power and you know the americans are obviously worried uh you know with uh china becoming a, a communist country and so he goes and investigates what's happening uh in uh the new uh communist state and you know, Mao had uh, a sort of regime of thought reform, um, of kind of government re-education. And so, uh, Hunter goes on to describe, you know, how like the government school that you have to go to in order to get a government job works. Um, and he calls this brainwashing. You know, people are, are being exhausted in the, in these schools, um, and, and sort of re-educated. Uh, with Marxist principles. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that book hits and uh, it gives, it gives uh, a name to something we hadn't talked about or described before. Um, but it really takes off as a term after the end of the Korean War. So um, in 1953, um, we uh, uh, get back about 7,000 American POWs. And the New York Times reported that about a third of them, um, had collaborated in some way with their captors. Um, there had been, uh, rep- there had been American prisoners, uh, on the radio, uh, reporting that the Americans had been doing, um, uh, germ warfare, in, in hmm. uh, Korea. Um, and then there were 21, uh, soldiers, uh, who, when they were released, um at the end of the Korean War decided not to even repatriate they decided to stay in uh Korea and uh this w- was you know a huge like PR problem right <laughs> like yes. um you know, w- how how could it be thinkable um for uh these people to uh agree with the communists agree with their communist captors Uh, more than with uh, their American home of democracy and freedom. Um, So that's when the term brainwashing really uh, takes off. It gets used uh, in the news media to describe these uh, 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 dissenting soldiers uh, of various degrees. Um, Hunter will go on to write another book, uh, Brainwashing and the Men Who Defied It, um, to uh, describe a little bit. He, nobody ever really says exactly what the techniques uh, of mind control are, um, mm-hmm. but um, they all imagine that they're going to be there. So um, Hunter's doing all of that. And then a number of military and scientific figures uh, start writing in like the Saturday evening post or write books um, about brainwashing and the threat to America, right? If the communists are developing technologies um, to say, use drugs and hypnosis and so forth to to really reprogram humans, um, then we have to be on our guard about it. Um, so uh, a number of, um, you know, a dozen or so books and around say 50 uh, uh, articles in newspapers and magazines Um, are devoted to this problem of uh, brainwashing. And uh, it gives us a a kind of version of the Cold War that then gets fought uh, at home, right? We have to be on our guard against uh, these brainwashers or infiltrators uh, in uh, America. So uh, it's very much a part of kind of anti-communist, McCarthyist Uh, Mm -hmm. uh, sentiment in, um, in the 1950s in particular.
0: And then you close out the chapter with a really interesting reading of the Manchurian Candidate. You then talk about how those kind of postures toward, uh, totalitarianism in the figure of the automaton gets picked up maybe in a way that would seem unlikely, uh, but gets picked up by the new left in the sixties and seventies. And that which is totalitarian and that which brainwashes becomes, um, domestic institutions here in America that need to be resisted and their totalitarian power needs to be resisted. And, and people need to keep from becoming automatons in the service of American institutions at home. Uh, can you talk about maybe some of the texts that you, that you read there and, um, really how you pull together that
1: historical picture of that moment. Sure. Yeah. The, and this was, um, that was the part of the book that wound up sort of coming in last, uh, into this bigger story that I was telling, mm. um, in part because it was the most unexpected. Um, yeah. But when I was, you know, uh, as I say, kind of tracing the network, trying not to, um, yeah, you know, trying to minimize the number of assumptions I was going to make, um, mm-hmm. you know, especially mm-hmm. about the political valences of this figure. Um, it's one that we assume is kind of uh, uh, a, a right wing sort of scare tactic. I wound up seeing it a lot in progressive texts and, um, you know, Ken Kesey's uh, one for the cuckoo's nest is maybe uh, my favorite example, um, because uh, there's actually a really kind of very close tie to uh, the brainwashing discourse, which is so. Uh, Randall Patrick McMurphy uh, is this kind of all-American uh, rebel figure who uh, gets himself uh, uh, locked up in an asylum. Uh, he's trying to get out of a work assignment uh, in, on a prison stint. And he rebels against the institution and the big nurse who's uh, uh, running the ward. Um, and ultimately, she defeats him. But it's kind of a story about kind of American defiance against, uh, this kind of, uh, a total institution, this kind of deadening, uh, force, uh, that is the, say the man or the establishment or in the mm-hmm. the novel, he calls it the combine because the it's, combine, yeah, it, it's, it's like, it's this weird institution where it's not just, um, the ward, but it's, you know, uh, capitalism and uh uh, institutions and like corporations and just kind of like all the bad things lumped into this sort of total institution that is uh society Mm. um so kesey writes this story about randall patrick mcmurphy and i was really surprised um rereading the novel um to find that uh mcmurphy has a backstory that he talks about at one point and it says you know he was a pow in korea and he Mm -hmm. led a prison revolt uh against the communists and it made me realize that Kesey is very explicitly kind of flipping around that brainwashing discourse. Um, he's mm-hmm. imagining that the, this kind of American, this essentially American free personality um, is a progressive one and is, mm-hmm. um, you know, the one that is our only hope against this kind of deadening force of uh, institutions and asylums and bureaucracy and so forth. Um, so Kesey. Uh, you know, is associated with the new left, um, but in interviews throughout his his life, I don't think this made it into the book. Um, he always talks about his novels as anti-totalitarian. Um, mm-hmm. Like he 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 wants his novels to fight uh, totalitarianism. So, in in my book, I wind up sort of looking at McMurphy as a figure, um, as uh, as this kind of reclaimed uh, uh, progressive figure. Um, and I think about how that kind of gets legs in the American mid-century and sixties and seventies and how, you know, some really, I think, rhetorically masterful writers use the set of images of human automatons toward their own ends. And so, uh, Ralph Ellison in Invisible Man makes this kind of total institution um the factory hospital and the uh communist party that winds up betraying uh uh, harlem uh in Mm -hmm. uh in his novel uh, and does so through a kind of automaton figures and uh betty friedan uh in the feminine mystique uh describes the household as a comfortable concentration camp in a you know very uh, uncomfortable image, um, and describes the housewife as, uh, being reduced to an anonymous biological, uh, robot. Um, so, uh, what these, what all of these figures are doing, I think, is to, uh, take, uh, this anti totalitarian image of the human automaton and kind of flip it around and use a, a kind of universally shared anti totalitarian Sentiment in America um, as a kind of rhetorical leverage point for uh, advancing their own uh, agendas. I found that a really unexpected but but fascinating part of, of the research that I did. And in the next chapter, you take that work and
0: that history and you really engage um, the contributions of cybernetics as a discipline. And you start to talk about a couple of really key aspects today of how we're thinking about what's an automaton, what's a human automaton. And you start to address ideas of what is human labor and um, things like techno-orientalism and multiculturalism versus fundamentalisms that become a piece of the rest of the book. Um, could you maybe dive into those three? Because this is, I think, what I read as the heart of the book, this chapter on computation and emotion and post-humanism. Um, so can you hit on labor and that aside on techno Orientalism and then how you come to an analysis of what's going on with the automaton figure between multiculturalism and fundamentalism?
1: Sure. Um, in this chapter, I wind up looking at really the, the birth of the the computer and cybernetics and, a kind of a set of questions about what it is that makes us human. Um, and I think that the developments of robotics and cybernetics, um, and computation made us think differently about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Norbert Wiener, who I think we should all be reading more of. He's, he's fascinating, uh, visionary figure. Um, in 19, I think 47 goes to the AFL CIO and says, Hey guys, you know that like so many uh, of these like great union jobs are about to be replaced by machines and it's going to devalue labor and things are going to be really bad for you. We need to figure out how to make a different strategy uh, for you guys and for America. Um, mm-hmm. and he, uh, you know, foresees a problem that's, you know, a major and you know, even in Uh, this past election where, where people have been talking about, uh, the Rust Belt and deindustrialization, um, automation has been a huge, uh, factor, uh, in that, in addition to, uh, uh, outsourcing. But Wiener winds up, um, you know, after he, you know, says that, well, the AFL CIO listened to me, but then, uh, we we couldn't figure out what to do next. Um, you know, winds up thinking about, kind of the human and the machine, I think, in, in really uh, fresh ways. Um, so I, I look in that chapter um, at kind of the influence of ideas about computation on, you know, particularly science fiction. Um, uh, this is the the chapter of the book where Gosh, it could have been a lot longer dealing with a lot more science yeah. fiction. Yeah. <laughs> I had to kind of rein myself in. Um, but I look at, say, Philip, uh, Philip K. Dick's uh, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep um, as mm-hmm. a, a text that's really thinking about emotion. Um, if we imagine that the difference between a human and a machine uh, is uh, the ability to feel then that whole book and blade runner based on do androids dream is just systematically picking apart you know oh, oh you think you think you know what feelings are um mm-hmm. in fact mm-hmm. uh you don't there there are all of these different components to what a feeling is some of them are physiological some are conscious some are cultural uh and moral so I kind of explore how that question about the difference between a human and a machine develops in surprising and unexpected ways in uh, the mid century. And as it kind of gets back to my main narrative, I think about the question of the self and the other um, as it often gets expressed there. And we see You know, uh, uh, Greta New and her uh, co-authors of a really useful volume on techno orientalism do a really smart job of tracing how our ideas about technology are often part of, you know, kind of racist images of Asians and Asian Americans. And so they trace the set of images where uh, Asians and Asian Americans are imagined as robotic and um as sort of not as unfeeling and so again kind of inhuman so i borrow uh from them this this kind of idea of techno orientalism and then in a step that like the the very last step of that chapter is to look at a a really interesting novel uh called snow crash by neil stevenson where um he winds up envisioning this kind of cybernetic, uh, and, and, and very emphatically multicultural future. Um, you know, there's like a, uh, it's a book written in the early nineties and there's, you know, Russian, uh, um, uh, fuzz grunge music and there's like a <laughs> Japanese rapper and you know uh, the the protagonist of the uh, story is half Japanese and half African-American um, and so so thinking about you know how our, our ideas about multiculturalism feed into techno-orientalism um, I realized well not every image of Asians and Asian Americans is is quite like that. Um, but in Snow Crash, what we find in this moment right after the Cold War is over is Stevenson sets up a a kind of divide uh, between uh, this cast of multicultural and often kind of cyborg characters. There are a lot who are kind of machine human hybrids in various ways, um, mm-hmm. but there are ones who are free thinking and kind of uh, a part of this democratic global Uh, multiculturalism, uh, and then there are fundamentalists, um, the, these people who've been programmed, uh, and brainwashed, um, and so where, uh, the free people in this novel, um, have all kinds of different bodies, uh, raced bodies and, uh, mechanical bodies, um, the thing that the novel, like, uh, makes into the enemy uh, is anything with a mechanical mind um, and that can't be free thinking. Um, and so that sort of feeds back into the overall narrative of uh, the the book um, where Stevenson is is you know has taken a lot of elements in very different ways, but now has instead of um, sort of American versus, Uh, totalitarian or communist divide. Uh, Instead, it's one between um, a kind of pluralist multiculturalism and then uh, a sort of mechanically envisioned uh, fundamentalism. So I think at this
0: point, we're going to have to leap over the cult programming chapter, leave that for readers to explore. And the final chapter is on terrorist consciousness yeah, and ways that uh, brainwashing and human automatons have been ideas that have been used in attempting to understand uh, what is American freedom and what is unfreedom in the 21st century and in the era of the war on terror and coming up to the present. Can you talk a little bit about how you engage that, some of the texts you've used and, and how you see really the, the lines you've been
1: developing, the cultural model you've been developing, how you bring that into the present. Yeah. I wound up, I wound up writing that first and then realizing that our sort of sociological and psychological understandings of cults, uh, winds up kind of feeding into that. So, uh, mm-hmm. people like Patty mm-hmm. Hurst and Ted Patrick, uh, who are fascinating, uh, wind up Kind of giving a prehistory to you know the set of discourses about fundamentalism and terrorism in the present. Um, yes. So I look at the beginning of that chapter at all you know a kind of a cluster of of ideas and discourses uh, that we have about the terrorist. Uh, there have been smart arguments about, for instance, uh, terrorists. Uh, Islam, Islamic terrorists, especially being kind of this medieval um, figure um, that we imagine uh, that as part of the past. And then uh, the legal scholar uh, Letty Volpe talks about this kind of ambiguous racial category that gets developed of the Arab Muslim uh, a kind of hybrid figure that gets uh, developed in profiling uh, after 9 11. Mm-hmm. And then, in what I see as kind of a complement to those, um, our descriptions, especially when we look at the consciousness, at the ideas of the fundamentalist, um, we often keep returning to this idea of brainwashing. And that's what we have uh, in the John Walker Lind case. And it's also what we get. In a number of really interesting texts uh, from the past decade and a half um, that sort of engage with um, the idea, w- with the question of what the terrorist is thinking. So I look at uh, Don DeLillo's Falling Man um, in the kind of literary category and then uh, actually two television shows, um, which are just as interesting, if not more, uh, the early seasons of Homeland um, yeah. Which seems to be based uh loosely off of John Walker Lind in some ways and uh, also the science fiction show Battlestar galactica um, and so all of these texts are you know interested in this kind of impossible uh, problem of how do we understand uh, someone who 's like thinking the unthinkable um, how do we um, like we we don't exactly want to sympathize with the terrorist, but we want to be able to understand them as something as like human as something that's not um, this kind of Cold War era uh, dialectic of free self and unfree other uh, that I've seen uh, that I kind of traced through the rest of the book. Um, so. Um, I look to I look to like Battlestar Galactica and Delilah's novel and uh, Homeland um, at this kind of set of strategies for uh, trying to break down this kind of self versus other mentality or this kind of unbridgeable uh, divide uh, that we see in public discourse about uh, the sort of free self and the brainwashed other uh, rather whether that's. Uh, An American self, a a free American democratic self and a fundamentalist other, whether it's a left wing or right wing uh, self and uh, the uh, appropriate other um, or or what have you. There's
0: there's so much more in the book that we just can't fit into an hour because. Of how rich your research is and your writing, the way that you engage uh, ideas of American individualism is really complex and compelling. How you how you hit on ideas about which bodies matter and how you engage Don Haraway's work uh, in really interesting detail, and how you engage even things like advertising and Apple's 1984 ad, uh, really interesting. That's um, <laughs> yeah, one of my favorite parts. <laughs> I, I hope that. um that listeners will really go out and engage with your work because I think you're doing um, something that's important and interesting and can really help us to discuss ways that we understand each other uh, today. So thanks so much for writing the book and for coming on the show. Uh, Before you go, can you tell us a little bit more about maybe what you're doing now and what we might expect to come next
1: from you? Sure. Um, And man, thanks again uh, for, for having me. This has been uh, a lot of fun. Um, I'm working now. Uh, my conclusion to the book sort of says like, well, if we you know have this idea of like sublime freedom versus sublime unfreedom um, in so many texts, might there be a kind of way around this image? Um, and so I describe the network and the social network as a kind of analytical tool uh, mm-hmm. to start with that. So I've uh, started a new book on uh, social networks, and I actually published an article uh, about it that, that describes the Bechtel test, that uh, kind of mm-hmm. popular mm-hmm. film thing, uh, as a, a kind of set of ideas about networks of characters and sort of where, uh, where and how we look for uh, kind of uh, uh, the space to be an individual, uh, uh, both in the world uh, and in text. So uh, that's where I'm headed next.
0: Uh, We'll keep an eye out for that. Scott, again, thanks so much for joining us on New Books in Intellectual History.
1: Thank you, Carl.